Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Risk! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison, and every Thursday we release these special episodes where we look back at content from our earlier years. Every other Thursday we feature just one classic story from the vaults. We ask that you keep the historical context in mind. Today, in 2021, there's a different consciousness. We've always asked storytellers to speak in as unfiltered a way as possible, and yet to tell their stories with as much compassion as possible. Even so, I'm sure the storytellers and the host might have worded some of what they said on these old episodes differently if they'd been recorded more recently. As always, the title of the whole series, Risk, is itself a content warning. This week, a story that Andrew Agapur first shared on the show in February of 2016. Here's Andrew now with a story we call Eye to Eye. I grew up small and never learned how to fight. So whenever I find myself in conflict, I find it's best to look the other person straight in the eye and use my words to diffuse the situation. (laughs) But it's hard to look someone straight in the eye when they're behind you. And it's hard to use your words when they're strangling you, hoping to leave you dead in an abandoned warehouse that sits at the outskirts of Charleston, South Carolina. This was February in 2005, and the story of how I got there is, I like to think, the story of America. (laughs) 
You see, I was born uh, the child of two immigrants, an Iranian father and a British mother. I attended a mosque, I was Muslim, and the mosque I went to was full of a diverse mix of people. There were Arabs and Persians, Africans, Filipinos. I went to an integrated public school. So the fact that I was this tiny, nerdy, dark brown kid with asthma didn't matter because all of us were from all over the color spectrum. I was born and raised in the melting pot. The first time I ever experienced direct racism was when I was a teenager uh, in the aftermath of 9-11. And so it was after that that I decided that I was going to become passionate about social justice work. I wanted to fight racial inequality. I went to college, became a poli-sci major. I also volunteered for a local advocacy campaign for the homeless, and I wanted to be the one to be in the population conducting surveys. I wanted to meet these people eye to eye. So my first day uh, visiting homeless shelters, I pulled up my Volvo, I was wearing an Oxford shirt, brought my clipboard, uh, and nobody wanted to talk to me for some reason. Uh, I made the rounds, people thought I was really weird, and finally, one guy agreed to talk to me. His name was Tony. He was this really big man with really sharp features. He was wearing a camo cap, tattered jeans, and a bright orange shirt. Uh, the first thing he said was, hey, you want to interview me? If you buy me a beer first. I was like, that's actually pretty cool. I like this guy. Uh, I was like so charmed. I was like, sure, I'll buy you a beer. And so I walked him to a corner store. And when we got to the corner store, I was so thrilled that I wasn't being carded at the age of 20 that I didn't really notice that Tony was eyeing my billfold. Then Tony said that he couldn't drink the beer at the homeless shelter, so we should go to a safe spot that he knew a few blocks away. And I was like, that sounds great. Let's do that. <laughs> and we walked to this safe spot, and he was totally silent the whole time. It wasn't until we got into that abandoned building that he slipped behind me and put his arm around my neck. And it's so strange sharing this now because it's so obvious, there's so many warning signs. But at the time, I was so passionate about the work, so invested in rebuilding that colorblind childhood past that I couldn't see any of those red flags. Tony's right arm was strong enough to actually lift me off the ground. And so I was just hanging there as if his clenched arm were a noose. His left hand was then free to grab my left wrist and pin it behind my back. He was completely silent the entire time and totally steady as my body dangled there, spasming like a caught fish. The only thing that I could see was a thin rectangle of light ahead of me from the entryway from the street. I knew I had to somehow talk my way out of this situation, but I couldn't breathe. All I had was my right hand, and so I wedged it between his arm and my throat, and I lifted up, and I got just a little bit of space, and I took a breath, and then instinctively, this is what came out of my mouth. I don't like wrestling, Tony, so if you wrestle me, <laughs> I'm not going to take you for lunch every week. And he sat me down, and he, <laughs> and he kept his arms still around me and just kind of 
left it a little bit looser and let me talk a little bit more and then just a stream of lies. It's like, oh yeah, for this interview project, I'd take you out to lunch every week, but I don't like wrestling, it's not fun for me. And uh, for lunch, we'd go to Ryan's, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet, super good, I love it there, but really, we just can't wrestle because <laughs> I just don't like it. And he let go and then he reached his left arm out and he grabbed his beer and he was like, that sounds good. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I was more amazed then than you could possibly be now. But the crazy thing was, as relieved as I was, I had to keep up with the lie, which means I hung out with him for another 10 minutes while he finished his beer. And then I had to walk back with him to the homeless shelter because that's where my car was parked. And then he offered me uh, that like, I should give him my phone number so he could call about Ryan's. And I was like, sure. And I gave him my real number. <laughs> I think I was in such shock and I, I was committed to making that story true. And so I gave him my real number and he walked away and I got in my Volvo and I locked the doors and I cried. And then I called my best friend, Alan, and I told him everything that happened. And then I hung up and I turned the ignition and I just lived the rest of my life. And I told like a handful of people about this story. Uh, whenever I told the Tony story, it was ultimately a story about how clever I was, about how I said just the right thing that appealed to his self-interest, but also pretended to be naive enough that I wouldn't call the cops. It's a story about brains over bronze. It's a story that ends with me driving away. Uh, but that's actually not where what happened ended. And I've actually never told this story to anybody else before, what happened next. You see, Tony did call me, like a week later. Uh, and I met with him again. And we continued to meet every month for the better part of a year. Uh, the first meeting, I wanted to keep up the auspices of an interview. Uh, and I didn't want to like drive him in my car to Ryan's, which is far away, and like be alone in the car with him. And I needed a safe place to meet, so I said to come meet me at my dorms on the first floor, because <laughs> I knew there was a security guard. And we sat in the lobby, like in two chairs next to each other, and I interviewed him, even though this project was long over. Uh, I'd, I had dropped out of it. Uh, and I mean, I just got to ask him whatever I wanted, so I asked him like, well, do you have a lot of friends? Uh, like, what are some of your hobbies? Uh, and, and as we started talking, it got more and more serious, the conversation. And then I finally asked him, what's it like to be black? You see, my own identity as a person of color was itself slipping away. I was no longer a practicing Muslim by then. Also, over the course of uh, like my late adolescence, my British genes kicked in, and so it's a lot whiter than ever before, which means that when I showed up to college, I just showed up as a generic white boy. And it was awesome, frankly. Uh, being white was so great, I was introduced to Frisbee and alcohol <laughs> and bacon. I had never tried bacon before. <laughs> Try bacon at the age of 20, it's amazing. Because you have like, the capacity to understand how good it is. But I was feeling kind of lost about my identity and feeling guilty about abandoning my ethnicity. When the interview was over, 
Tony asked for $20 so he could take a cab back to the homeless shelter, and I gave it to him. We continued to meet month after month, and over time, the nature of those meetings changed. Tony asked for more and more money, $20, $30, And we spoke for less and less time until it ended up that I was just driving to some pay phone at the other part of town and giving him cash through the driver's side window and driving away. For Tony, this was clearly an excellent situation. <laughs> I imagine that he has his own version of this story uh, where, he's, where it wasn't me who tricked him, it was he who figured out this opportunity to milk my white guilt for every last drop. I imagine that I would drop him off that money and drive away and he would brag to his friend like, mug a white boy once, get paid for a day. <laughs> Teach a white boy to mug himself. Get paid for a lifetime. And the thing is, he would be right, because that's kind of what was going on. I felt so guilty. Uh, I felt really guilty about the fact that I was passing as white. I felt really guilty about the privilege that I inherited from my parents who'd worked their whole lives just so that I could get high and eat bacon. Uh, and Tony, for me, uh, was connected to that. It was like I owed some cosmic debt, and Tony came into my life as the collector. It's ironic, looking back, because I thought I was colorblind, but really I was reducing Tony to his black body, his black body that couldn't pass like mine could, his black body that wasn't born into the same America that mine was. You know, I was attacked by Tony the person and it's really hard to say this, but I think that I actually had thought of his blackness as more significant uh, than his personhood, which is why it was so easy uh, for me to get into that relationship, because of what that blackness represented. Tony and I fell out of touch after that, uh, and I actually became a lot less interested in working directly eye-to-eye -eye with people in the world. I got scared. I went from social justice work to political theory to then switching majors to philosophy. Philosophy being about as far away from a homeless shelter as you could possibly get. I mean, what is the history of philosophy but just a parade of rich white men who never went outside? Uh, and that was the safe place for me. I met a woman in one of my classes and our relationship was as brief as it was toxic. Uh, she was very emotionally manipulative and dumped me in this spectacularly awful way. And so I spent the summer, uh, late in my college years, just super depressed and distraught. To deal with it, I would go on these long walks all around Charleston uh, with my first love, marijuana. And on one of these walks, I found myself in a pretty bad neighborhood really late at night. I was walking pretty quickly to try to get home, and I turned a corner, and all of a sudden, I was like right up in a group of five or six guys who had been waiting there quietly. The hair on my neck stood up. This felt like a dangerous situation. I pivoted to get away, and I heard my name. And it was Tony. I think it was because of that breakup. Uh, I wasn't scared. I wasn't feeling guilty. I wasn't even relieved that I knew one of these guys. I was angry. I was pissed off. I was mad at Tony for taking advantage of me. I was mad at myself for being so passive. And so I snapped. I said, Tony, I've got nothing for you. 
I've got nothing to give you right now, and I'm going away, and I stormed off. And Tony broke with the group and followed me. And he called after. I said, are you okay? I turned around, and I said, no. And then Tony said, well, chin up. Now, if Tony were behind me and told me to lift my chin, I mean, fool me once, shame on you. But he was in front of me. And so when I lifted my chin, we were looking at each other eye to eye. And we were just two people for the first time. And then Tony turned and walked away. Thank you. That's all for this week's Classic Risk Singles episode. Now, don't miss out on our regular full-length episodes. There's a brand new one every Tuesday. And everything you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com.